If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang up and listen is sponsored by Bombas. Bombas are athletic leisure socks reimagined to look better, feel better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. One pair purchased equals one pair donated. Go to bombas.com slash hang. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hang and use promo code hang and you'll get a free pair. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate's sports podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 1st, 2014. On this week's show, we're going to discuss an arbitrator's decision to reinstate Ray Rice to the NFL and what that means for Rice and for NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. We'll also talk about the sad state of the former Washington starting quarterback, Robert Griffin III, and the maybe not quite as sad state, but still kind of sad state, of Chicago Bulls point guard Derrick Rose and how injuries can derail young careers. We'll be joined by Gideon Haig to discuss the death of Philip Hughes, the Australian cricket player who died after being struck in the head by a ball during a match last week. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll debate whether the NFL should fine the laconic Marshawn Lynch 
for refusing to talk to the media. Joining me in Washington, D.C. as a member of the mainstream media, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Sometimes laconic. Good. You just demonstrated <laughs> that. Like that. Coolidge-esque. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Mike. Uh, <laughs> Which Coolidge are you talking about? From the White Shadow or the President? Yeah, yeah. The White DC Shadow. DC Hustler. Oh, no, that was Fast Break. Right. right. Coolidge, Coolidge, Salami. I don't know if I can name another White Shadow guy. Um, <laughs> salami, too. Yes. <laughs> Salamita. Coach. The coach. Yeah. Ken. Ken. Um, Ken Reeves. Coach Reeves. Coach Reeves. Mike, I just noticed when I went through the list of topics for today's show that it's super depressing. Can you yeah. just assure assure our listeners that we're going to share a few laughs today as well? Yeah, we're going to live, we're going to learn, we're going to have some laughs. You know, this weekend I went to an indoor water park in South Jersey and then Diggerland, which is an amusement park that also has what's called the world's highest ropes course. And I don't doubt that. I conquered my fear and I'm here to both amuse and educate. I thought it was a theme park based on the uh, analyst stylings of ESPN's Digger Phelps. That would well, have been we, a lot less fun. You walk in, they highlight you in marker. <laughs> you proceed to see two-thirds of every basketball game. I learned over the weekend that there exists a theme park in Pennsylvania about Sesame Street, like Sesame Land or something. Yeah, mm, yeah. It's been there. Is that like a Northeast thing? I've never heard of that. I've never seen another one. It's called Sesame Place, and I know that because my brother used to live there when his kid was a toddler. He lived he inside the theme park. Inside well, the garbage Stephen, can. You should, you should disclose your brother is Grover. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember this because you mentioned the uh, ropes course or whatever. Yeah. I was also told by my friend that there was a giant cargo net over the entirety of this Sesame Street theme park. And as like a small child, you could just like be the eye in the sky, like crawling over the cargo net? Elmo yeah. or Grover or whoever. It sounded very odd to me. Ropes course, terrifying. Can we go back to the ropes course? It's sort of yeah. a sport. Terrifying, right? I think when you hit, how old are you now, Pesca? You're 40, right? Yeah. Yeah. You lose your balance. You lose that sense of <laughs> spatial awareness. Very, very well, Thanks for bringing us back yeah. down, yeah. Stefan. Sure. I appreciate that. This was well, if you have to, if you have to, pr- if you if you have to provide bravery for little children, that's what gets you through it. Thorpe. All right. I forgot so, about Thorpe and Gomez. That's right. Yeah. Go go Gomez. I believe. Um, not a great whimsy watch week. Stefan's raising his hands, a la the St. Louis Rams players siding with the Ferguson protesters before the game. That is. Whatever that is, that is not whimsy. Opposite of whimsy. <laughs> this is the opposite of whimsy, Ste- Stefan. Um, Texans quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick after the game had his uh, little kid come up to the podium and multiply two-digit numbers in his head, which was two-digit not— numbers between 90 and 99. It was right. specific. It was not on field, so we've ruled in the past that it doesn't count as whimsy. Pesca has also decreed in the past that having children— and your press conference is disrespectful? That maybe is overstating it, but not by much. <laughs> Using them as props, I believe. I mean, there's a lot. I objected just, to you because it, yeah. yeah. The, and the only other thing I saw was the officials screwing up in the Steelers-Saints game that they snapped the ball and the officials like stopped the play and said, we will re-kick the ball as the officials weren't in position to officiate the play. That's wow. Kind of, that's not really whimsy. No. That's I, the I mean, best that I a, could do. 
That was, I think that could lead, that was like an episode of Friday Night Lights. You know? <laughs> we'll just, we'll just do the game ourselves, but no. That might have, uh, uh, you know, th- there might have been a light chuckle there. The officials made a, a slight boner. I'm sorry. It's just not going to be a whimsical week on Hang Up and Listen. Um, and that is the perfect transition to noting that on Friday, U.S. District Court Judge Barbara Jones ruled that the NFL overstepped its authority in suspending Ray Rice two separate times for the same thing. The league justified placing Rice into double jeopardy by arguing that he misled them about the sequence of events when he hit his then fiance in a casino elevator and that the video from inside that elevator contradicted his account, leading Commissioner Goodell to increase his penalty from two games without pay to an indefinite suspension. In her 17-page decision, Jones, the independent arbitrator appointed by Goodell to hear Rice's appeal, writes that after careful consideration of all the evidence, I am not persuaded that Rice lied to or misled the NFL at his June interview. And she also finds that the indefinite suspension was an abuse of discretion and must be vacated. Um, I read this 17-page decision and came away thinking uh, what you sometimes think when you read about colleges trying to deal with these sexual assault cases where they have these tribunals that they set up independent from the court system. You get the sense that the NFL does not know how to do these kinds of proceedings, that they don't have the rules to handle it, that they make up the rules and then defy the own the rules that they're making up as they go along. They're not taking notes during this meeting. They're not taking good notes. There's no, at it's least. not transcribed. There's no transcription of these proceedings. And so you understand why, um, you know, when, when somebody who's actually from the legal profession looks at what the NFL did, they're like, yeah, this is not, the, this, this didn't work. This isn't right. Well, doesn't this point out the folly of organizations like the NFL trying to serve as an adjudicator in matters that transcend your sort of run-of-the-mill violation of a code of conduct. I mean, when when things tend to stray toward the rather serious, like domestic violence, the NFL has proven to be ill-equipped to handle this, no matter how many lawyers from how many big New York firms they have in their employ. They are tone deaf to the realities of not just how the public might respond in the current climate to um, a case like Ray Rice's, but to the general notion of fairness. The NFL believes that it is above everything and therefore it can adjudicate and handle these processes however it wants to. And that has now been exposed as a complete and total joke. Well, I don't even think that it's uh, that they're ill-equipped or that they're not understanding where uh, society is. It's that it's a little slightly off from ill-equipped. They could be equipped if they just had a pretty clear line like we will we will suspend four games for everything that the courts intervene with. Or in cases of domestic violence, we will defer to an outside body because it's really not in the purview of a football organization to rule properly on these kinds of cases. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea that they think, sure, the NFL's a powerful organization. They're not as powerful as all the courts and all the laws combined. So they're going to have a rule book with penalties that mirrors society's rule books, many, many rule books for many, for many jurisdictions. It just seems very hubristic to think that that could happen. Well, they try to manipulate the rules that they have to get the outcome that they think that people want or that they decide 
is correct maybe after the fact. And so after this meeting in June where, um, you know, the arbitrator rules that Rice did indeed say that um, he hit Janae and, um, you know, no matter what the NFL's recollection was of that meeting, so they suspend him for two games. Then there's an outcry and Goodell changes the policy. So now it's six games. He apparently called Ray Rice after changing that rule and was like, don't worry, man, this isn't about you. We're going to keep your penalty at two games. This is only forward looking. Then the video comes out and they're like, actually, you're going to be suspended for way more than six games. But just again, when somebody from the legal profession, when a judge looks at this, they see an organization that is acting capriciously, that is not following the kinds of protocols that you would use if you were, um, you know, a judicial body. And so I think that is, um, you know, making a good case that the NFL should not be handling these things, just like, as I said in my introduction, when you look at these proceedings that colleges and universities do with sexual assault cases, you have an overwhelming feeling that they are not equipped to deal with this stuff, that this should be done in a court of law or done by someone like who's you know has legal training, not by you know people who not work by in the like library an electrical or an en- engineering professor. Yeah, and and the thing, the other parallel is that in both cases, they're not fair actors. They're not honest brokers. Their their motivation is not their stated motivation. Their motivation is to minimize monetary damage, minimize the perception that your brand will get hurt. That is why colleges, maybe even within the ranks of the college and within the ranks of the NFL, there are people who honestly think otherwise. But when you get down to it, the people making most of the decisions are there to protect the vast amounts of money that each organization has. Right. And this is not news. I mean, this is not new, rather. You go back, and this is embedded in the history of professional sports, at least since Kennesaw Mountain Landis and baseball in the 1920s. Uh, Pete Rozelle suspended Paul Horning for betting. Alex Karras was suspended for betting. There have been all sorts of examples through the years of the commissioner having this power, this authority. But what we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years is how that power has evolved. And Goodell has attempted to consolidate that power and to give himself even greater latitude in how he dispenses that power. So the NFL has kind of lowered the bar in a rather hilarious way for evaluating Goodell's conduct. So Jeff Pash from the league put out a statement saying, no part of Judge Jones's decision questions the commissioner's honesty or integrity. So that's basically where we are. Yeah, like the NFL completely fouled this up. Goodell was wrong. The judge repudiated, uh, you know, what his actions were. But he didn't lie, you know. So that's that's basically where we are. Like that's the best the NFL can say for Goodell now. Like he did yeah. not intentionally mislead yeah. The public or this judge, like congratulations. Well, and he, even yeah, and by the way, and by the way, he might have lied. <laughs> and by the right. way, he might have lied because the, the judge, judge says the judge just didn't say it. He might have lied. <laughs> right. It's yeah. not like in a in a legal ruling, a judge is going to be like, by the way, this witness, you know, whose conduct we're not actually, you know, we're we're talking about Ray Rice here. Um, you know, this guy just happens to be a liar. P.S. Um, you know, just f- so so you know. For your knowledge. Well, what, what the NFL ends up looking like, I think, is FIFA. And not that there are envelopes stuffed with cash being passed among owners. No, Russian, of course, Russian paintings. Russian paintings, caviar. 
jewelry watches. Um, but in its belief that if it says something, it is so. And that is the MO for these kinds of organizations, that if the NFL says that, that nothing in Judge Jones's ruling questions the commissioner's integrity, well, that is, that is so. Just the way FIFA says that there was no corruption here in the bidding process for these, for these World Cups. Organizations like FIFA and the NFL, because of their massive weight and their massive revenue and their resources, believe that if they simply say something, the vast majority of their of their ticket buying and TV watching public will not know enough to dig any deeper and accept their statement at face value. That's the hope. And I don't know where the public is on this. I would assume that you can't require football fans to do, you know, many layers of deep thinking. And so they probably just want the bad man to be punished and not to think about it that much. But it is Roger Goodell's fault. Like, even if you think the guy deserved a year punishment, the reason he doesn't isn't because of some meddling court. It's because Goodell messed it up from the get-go. It's the Goodell's original sin compounding Ray Rice's original sin. But he, he screwed up by giving him only two games and not getting it. The arbitrator said in her decision, you know, if Goodell suspended him indefinitely from the beginning, there isn't anything I could do. Like, that's that wasn't what was at issue. It was the now, I guess, double jeopardy. I guess the takeaway from Goodell and anyone else who wants to be a petty dictator is always start off with the indefinite suspension and then figure it out later. That would seem to be a way around this. Yeah, exactly. Um, and now four teams have expressed interest in Ray Rice, according to Adam Schefter, although the Saints certainly were, were one of the teams named and then denied it pretty vociferously. So I'm... Um, Maybe it's down to three. Maybe those teams aren't actually interested. And so when I saw that the Saints, um, you know, at least initially were considering him, you know, I was like, that wouldn't be good. I don't want to have to be put in the position to cheer for that guy. And so I think we're we're in as fans of individual NFL teams, if you feel, you know, this ruling was justified and Goodell was wrong and that, you know, Rice should have been reinstated. I think you could also feel that you don't want your particular team to sign this guy. So where does that, so where does that leave us in terms of, you know, I don't think this person should not be allowed to practice his profession or make a living for the, for the entire rest of his life. But, you know, that means that an individual owner and team is going to have to make an affirmative decision to, pay this guy to sign this guy to have him wearing a uniform. So where does that leave us, Stefan? Well, I mean, other this has happened in the past. Michael Vick came back to the NFL after serving time in prison and 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 expressing publicly remorse for his actions and being whether forced or sincerely being involved in community service related to the abuse of animals. Both yeah. things which Ray Rice has done. Which Ray Rice has done. Express Ray Rice remorse is now going to be on television service. on the Today Show and on ESPN. Janae Rice, his wife, it was on the Today Show on Monday morning. Uh, revealing, I thought, interestingly, that the Ravens had given them sort of talking points for how to handle their their news conference and urged her to participate in that in that news conference. And she said, I wanted to do anything that would help protect um, her husband's future, um, her income, his job. And then you've got the NFL part of this, too. Is there do we have any real expectation of change? Andy, Andrew Brandt of, uh, has a piece on Monday Morning Quarterback about how the NFL will or whether it will change going forward. He's not very optimistic. I mean, he looked at the Adrian Peterson case and say, well, commissioner continues to wield his power. He appointed the appeals officer for Adrian Peterson, and that person would be 
Harold Henderson, who's worked in the NFL's front office for many, many, many years. So again, the NFL doesn't really have a lot of incentive to change much. They'll change their rules slightly. So we'll see this cosmetic change, but whether that'll actually change how the NFL behaves, who knows? I found a lot of Jameel Hill's interview with Janae Rice interesting because You know, Hill was on, I think it was ABC, but one of these networks saying there's a narrative around abuse victims and what Janae Rice wants to do is change that narrative. And that's sort of like, it's a little bit of a straw man. How does, oh, I have many conflicting thoughts. Like, how does Janae Rice really change the narrative? I guess it's whatever you want to define the narrative as. She's not every stereotype, but of course, some of the stereotypes maybe are contradictory. And then you can properly say, you know, we, when we, when we say, well, let's not take her word or let's, uh, in no way give her credit for what she's doing, which is asking for forgiveness for one act, because that's what abuse victims do. I mean, yeah, I have a lot of sympathy to look at an actual person, an actual living person who's thinking things out via her intellect, via her emotions and saying, yes, well, that's what people like you. That's what people in your category of people always do. I have a lot of sympathy for that. On the other hand, I don't know that this is this huge changing of the narrative. And I have this other thought that we're so far behind, especially the NFL is so far behind in where they should be with domestic violence. But what if they weren't? There was a time when we were really stupid as a society. I'm sure the leagues were too about drunk driving. And now we've made it totally unacceptable and we're appalled by it. And in some jurisdictions, you know, one drunk driving um, conviction can lead to much, much more serious jail time than uh, spousal abuse. So when a guy gets busted for drunk driving, if the punishment is sufficient in the first first half, we don't really feel this huge need to come out and say, no, we're not going to give any quarter. But here Ray Rice is, and it seems like the progressive thing to do is to say there shall be no forgiveness, there shall be no quarter, because as a society, as a league, we've been so bad on this issue. But in a way, that's just the timing of the issue. And then Ray Rice and his wife is bearing the brunt of that. It's it's complicated. And I don't think it's as simple as, you know, she's going against a previously existing narrative. Yeah, two final thoughts, and then we can move on. First, um, worth noting that Richie Incognito has not yet been signed by an NFL team. He's been going around and working out with teams all year. This is after he was released by the Dolphins because of the Jonathan Martin um, bullying extravaganza. Um, There was a column in the Denver Post that guy was like, the Broncos need toughness, and this guy is really tough. And so we should – so like the kind of slow – laundering of his reputation is starting to happen, but he still has not been signed by a team. Um, Second, I thought it was very interesting that ESPN gave Janae Rice final cut on that interview. It was an as told to with Jameel Hill. And there's a note on the top that said that she had approval over the story, which is something that you really never see. And so you have to take that piece, I think, with a grain of salt. ESPN said, you know, we would have walked away if we were uncomfortable with the final product, but and with an as told to, I think there is the you as an audience, you have to read it with the assumption that this is somebody's perspective and that they have a particular story they want to tell and they're gonna tell it. But giving her complete editorial control over the product is kind of a curious decision given how kind of important this story was. And ESPN has done a lot of great reporting on this, but still like giving giving her complete unfettered control over a printed story written by somebody else was a bit odd. One final point for me, 
that if you talk about the rehabilitation of the reputation or the sort of the slow return of athletes to the NFL, we should talk about Josh Brent for a second of the Cowboys, who was convicted of manslaughter in the death of a teammate of his. Uh, drunk he, driving. Drunk driving. He was suspended by the NFL for 10 games, quietly reinstated to the Cowboys roster and activated a few weeks ago. He's back in the NFL. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas. Bombas are athletic leisure socks re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. Socks are the number one most requested clothing items at homeless shelters, and Bombas was founded to help solve that problem. One pair purchased equals one pair donated. Bombas has donated more than 150,000 pairs of socks to those in need since launching in October of 2013. Bombas developed its donation socks specifically to meet the needs of people on the street. The socks are exactly like the Bombas socks that are sold, but with an antimicrobial treatment, reinforced seams, and darker colors to show less visible wear. Bombas spent two years on research and development prior to launch to come up with seven substantial improvements to the athletic sock to make sure they feel good and perform well. I will highlight a couple of those improvements. Number one, Invisitoe. We get rid of the annoying bump that runs across the toes on most socks. We hand-link our socks so you do not feel a thing. Number two, performance footbed. A reinforced footbed built for extreme comfort, not overwhelming thickness. Bombas are purpose-built for athletes and engineered for extreme comfort. Go to bombas.com slash hang. That's bombas.com slash hang. And use the promo code hang, and you will get a free pair. On Sunday in Indianapolis, the number one and number two picks in the 2012 NFL Draft did not face off, as Andrew Luck led the Colts to a 49-27 win over Washington and backup quarterback, former backup quarterback Colt McCoy, Robert Griffin III, who seemed like a star in leading uh, the fighting Dan Snyders to the playoffs in his rookie season before going down with a knee injury, did not see the field after getting benched by coach Jay Gruden. While Luck is seventh in the NFL in the ESPN's QBR stat, Griffin ranks ahead of only Jacksonville's Blake Bortles. Um, your mental process of wondering, is, does that mean he is behind Geno Smith? Yes, that means he is behind <laughs> Geno Smith. Meanwhile, in Chicago, Derek Rose was back from his latest injury. This went to his hamstring and looked pretty good in a win over the Nets, scoring 14 points in 26 minutes. But after suffering two traumatic knee injuries in the last couple of years, Rose's comeback still feels tenuous, and he's facing increasing criticism for his inability to stay in the lineup. He's also facing criticism for a recent interview he gave in which he said, I'm thinking about long term. I'm thinking about after I'm done with basketball, having graduations to go to, having meetings to go to. I don't want to be in my meetings all sore or be at my son's graduation all sore just because of something I did in the past. I'm just learning and being smart. So fans do not like... Uh, Stefan, when athletes talk this way. And I feel like the case of Rose is a little bit different um, with him talking about it, it's not just saying, I want to be ready for the playoffs or I want to be ready for my whole career, but saying, I want to be healthy for my son's graduation. And this is a basketball player, not a football player. And I think we have less sympathy for guys who are just running down the court and not being uh, hit in the head. So what do you make of what Rose said and what do you make of the reaction to it? Um, I'm with him. I mean, I think when you've been through injuries like the kinds that he's suffered and when you add into that the fact that every professional athlete today is exposed far more than previous generations to the long-term effects of what they do 
in their professions. And to say that, yeah, they're not football players and they don't get hit in the head. You mean exposed to like they're more aware of it? They're more aware of it. They're exposed to more in the media. They see more. They can't help but see more about the effects of being a pro athlete. And while we can say, yeah, concussions, football, CTE, it's much more obvious when you play a game where the idea is to pummel somebody. You also look at Phil Jackson or you look at Charles Barkley or you look at any number of retired NBA players who have difficulty walking and have difficulty using many of their joints, which is why athletes often use joints to alleviate that pain. But they it's in front of them too. the effects of a 10 or a 15 year career in the NBA are stark as well. Not being able to walk, arthritis, back pain, hip pain, shoulder pain. These are all realistic outcomes for a long NBA career. And when you've had two traumatic knee injuries, including an ACL, at the outset of your career, it's understandable that an athlete might look at the future the next 40 years and say, I'm worried about that. And I want to make sure that before I continue down this, this path, that I am completely and totally healthy and able to perform. He's got doubts. I think that where Derrick Rose falls down is that his phrasing was bad. And I think his phrasing was bad. I think he kind of means it. Uh, He says all sore. Stefan, you phrased it like, you know, well, what if he's crippled? What if he can't walk? What if he has, you know, serious ailments? So he didn't say serious ailments. You know, he said all sore. He doesn't want to be all sore at his his son's graduation. And I think when you say that, 90-something, close to 99% of Americans would trade places with Derrick Rose. And of course, it's going to alienate fans. And they wouldn't trade places out of ignorance. He doesn't make $2 million or even $200,000 a year. He makes $20 million. That's so much money. And part of making such a huge amount of money is playing through pain and maybe it's not uh, maybe that we're a little bit wrong in that we uh, exalt that and that we tell stories about when Jack Youngblood played on a broken leg and he was probably getting paid not even $200,000 a year but once the money becomes that big you just have to roll your eyes and say that is not only the not not the right way to phrase it, maybe it is reasonable. And I think it is reasonable for the fans to not just question the phrasing, but to question the heart of this guy who's making so much money. As much as I side with players and I think it's really stupid when people begrudge them the amount of money that they make, I agree with Pesca in this instance because – and another caveat and stipulation is that across all – areas of, of popular culture, not just sports, is the way that we evaluate people based on their self-presentation. A guy who's known for being really good at basketball, we judge him based on his ability to speak extemporaneously. We saw this with LeBron James, and and now we're doing it with Derrick Rose. But I think that Mike is is right. I think that if you're making that amount of money, I think you should understand how this will be perceived in the rest of the world. Charles Barkley actually said it. you noted him as somebody who can't walk right. He said what Derek Rose has said is stupid. It's disrespectful to people like maids or, you know, there's no expectation of people who don't play pro sports that after your career is over that you'll be able to walk properly and won't be sore at your graduation. So why should somebody who's a professional athlete who has the best trainers in the world, who makes a lot of money to perform in these games, why should they have an expectation that's different from those of the rest of the world? And we're not talking... I think about traumatic brain injuries. We're talking 
about a guy who's had some issues with his legs. And I think that he is right and he's justified and this we can transition at some point to Washington. Chicago seems like a competent organization, one that acts with, you know, forethought that they think about the future, that they think about how they have an investment in this guy and how they want to win championships. They don't want to rush him back for that reason. But to suggest that you're thinking about something 30 years down the road, I think just you're you're not going to come off well. I hope his kid graduates in less than 30 years. What if Derek Rose had said, look, I haven't felt 100% since either of these injuries, and I'm concerned and afraid that my career is going to get destroyed. I want to play basketball for 10 more years in the NBA, but I'm afraid that if I continue to play with some mental doubt and physical pain that I'm going to either aggravate or re-injure or cause something more serious that'll end my career. That's really keeping me from playing to my fullest. Well, again, I don't think that it's necessarily fair to say, like, this is a bad guy. Right. But that's just so wildly different from what he actually right. said. I'm just, right. That's why I'm <laughs> saying it. What if he what had if he... said that? Well, what if he expressed a remorse that wasn't the remorse he had s- expressed? I mean, he's saying his business meetings, his future business meetings, because the $20 million a year that he's earning now, well, that compares, that pales in comparison to whatever his future business is going but I'm, to be. But I'm not sure that that's what he's saying. I think that, you know, I think that in his mind, he's worried about his future and he's worried about being seriously injured because he's been seriously injured twice in the last three years. And therefore... He is. He expressed the concern that he's afraid for what his life is going to be like. And that's not an unreasonable fear. Maybe it's not reasonable given the amount of money he's paid and given the expectation that professional athletes will play for five or ten years and will endure some level of discomfort the rest of their lives. That's part of the bargain. So the way he phrased it was not, as you guys both have pointed out, particularly oh, smart, smart. Um, but by the same token, it's not an unreasonable fear for him to be having. It's not unreasonable for him to be thinking about this. Sure. No doubt. And, you know, Wright Thompson did this profile of him in ESPN magazine where he comes off as being afraid, which I thought was very refreshing that he comes off as being human. And I think we would all feel that way. Um, and we want our athletes to be kind of superhuman. And that's the sad thing about him and about Griffin is that they're both young and that they both came into the league as not only kind of promising players, but as kind of transcendent athletes, electrifying whatever kind of adjectives you want to use. And to see these guys at the age of 24 in Griffin's case and 26 in Rose's case be kind of overwhelmed by doubt, be stripped of their athletic ability. You don't think about when guys come out of college that they're, they may be the best that they're ever going to be, at least from a like speed, agility, power perspective. And from all there, it's all downhill from there. And these guys are just a very stark example of that. And in Griffin's case, you also now get the sense that maybe he wasn't ever what we thought he was going to be. But like I was saying before, the organization is just so messed up and they've done him absolutely no favors um, that it's it, it seems like we'll never be able to really evaluate who he was or what he could have been, Mike. Yeah, and I think that the playing afraid and playing with uh, pain and having it weigh upon you mentally, 
yeah, of course, it's understandable. I don't want to be a monster. I have sympathy for the guy. But I do think that many, many athletes in their position, and not benighted athletes, I think guys who really do think long-term, and I think guys like Steve Nash and guys we've talked to, look at that, and I don't think they say, wow, he's saying out loud what I have thought uh, in private. I think they say something to the tune of, you got to get past that. I mean, as much as we decry the macho bullshit warrior mentality in professional sports, you do have to have sort of a warrior mentality. And if you don't have that, I mean, what's Derek Rose's injury? Current injury? Yeah. What, what's he sidelined with? Well, he's been playing recently, but he missed a bunch of games with the hamstring games injury. With a hamstring. Yeah. So when they when you talk about like sore at graduation or when you you know, raise the specter of limping and cripples, hamstring injuries? I mean, a hamstring injury? This is after two, like, completely, like, messed up knees, like, tearing up his knees. I know, and I have bad knees, and a lot of people do, and it's a lot different from a head injury, and it's a lot different from, you know, the football players in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, why is it so unthinkable that maybe Derek Rose has just a greater aversion to pain and has less of the warrior mentality, not on the continuum close to, wow, that's ridiculous, but maybe on the side where actually I think you maybe need to overcome that a little bit if you want to be considered a top professional athlete. Tape an aspirin to it, dude. Tape an aspirin to it. Yeah, I don't want to say, but you know. Calipari, his college coach at Memphis... I remember hearing an interview, and maybe we can find this afterwards, where he said that Rose had like a ridiculously low tolerance for pain. Like this was his coach saying this, that he like went down on a layup one time and he thought that he had died, and then he just kind of eventually just got back up. And I when think we that have we these, have when we no... have these discussions, when we have these discussions, we say things like, "Look, these guys aren't wimps." I'm not saying Derrick Rose is a wimp, but is it so out of the realm of possibility that some extremely gifted athlete, when not hurt, when he is hurt? I mean, statistically speaking, a couple of those guys actually are going to be wimps. Maybe that guy is Derrick Rose. And maybe what doesn't work in Derrick Rose's case is sports psychology. I mean, every athlete at this level has someone that they talk to, whether it's in the team or out or without the team um, or both. And I can't imagine that Derrick Rose went through two and a half years of constant rehabilitation and expressed all of these doubts publicly and no doubt privately to people within the Bulls organization. And he wasn't seeing on a regular basis a sports psychologist. So something clearly is not clicking with Derrick Rose. You're right. I think that's evident by the way he's expressed himself publicly, honest or not. You know, media training A would have told him not to articulate those kinds of doubts quite so honestly. And sports psychology would have helped him overcome those doubts so that he doesn't get to the point where he feels burdened by them and needs to talk about it like the way he did. But for all this conversation, like in a few months, he could be back and lead the Bulls to a championship. And this could all be forgotten there's just a big question mark hanging over him and it seems like fans of the team and you know sports writers in chicago just want there to be certainty when there isn't like we have the you know the the rest of his story it could go so many different ways but for rg3 it really feels like it's over (laughs) because um so much of what he was like with derrick rose like you know he's sort of like russell westbrook like he was great, but he's not. They didn't have to like change the game of basketball to accommodate his greatness or anything. With RG three, you know, he was at his best when they were running kind of a different offense from one like a zone read where he could run around and you know throw and run or a more whatever. college the, style offense. Yeah, and then 
he got hurt. And now it seems like he just can't do that stuff anymore. And now, you know, he's being kind of Tebowized where, like, this guy can't even, like, it's acting like he never even played quarterback before. You read, like, Greg Cosell, who's a really good analyst in scout. He's like, this guy doesn't know how to, like, how to, like, move his feet. He, like, doesn't know how to move his arm. It's like he... (laughs) It, it's he doesn't like, know how to look at his receivers. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. Like you, you get the sense from reading these people that like RG three like only got by in his athleticism, which couldn't possibly be true. But you feel like you know there's not that great of a possibility that this guy is going to become what he what he might. And there's also not a great body of evidence to support the argument that RG three would have been one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. I mean, he succeeded over the course of the larger part of his rookie season. And it was a great, incredible, transcendent rookie season. Beyond that, though, we don't have a lot of evidence. I mean, Tim Tebow had a pretty good season with the But RG3 completed an enormous percentage of his passes. He did. Wait, and, but, but Derek Rose, what's the model for him? A super quick point guard who could penetrate and dish. Yeah, that's a thing that's been uh, in great basketball, in the NBA forever. Right. Yeah. Uh, what's RG3's niche? Well, a very mobile quarterback. Okay, for about a year and a half, that seemed like the entire sport of the NFL was going to be upended because defenses couldn't contain them. And now all the mobile quarterbacks, Russell Wilson, Colin Kaepernick, etc., have uh, run up against defenses who pretty much know how to defend them. So yeah, that's the argument. I don't even think it's within the makeup of RG3. He was also drafted at a time when you said, wow, a guy can really beat you with his feet. And now that scene is less true because again, defenses have learned how to play these guys. So Rose is in a category of, you know, he fills a classic slot that is awesome and uh, important, and we've known that to be true for a while, and RG3 seems to be in a niche that is fading, even if he is healthy. Okay, a quick word about our membership program, Slate Plus. You can sign up for $5 a month at slate.com slash plus. You get extra podcasts. You get extra podcast segments on shows like this one and the Culture and Political Gab Fest. You also get free events. There's one for Slate Plus members coming up in New York. You can get free admission to Slate Holiday Movie Party featuring... Dana Stevens. It's at Videology in Brooklyn. Uh, they're going to have movie clips, trivia, discussion, drinks. Dan McCoy of The Daily Show and host of the Flat, Flophouse podcast will also be there. And it's free for Slate Plus members. That's a nice perk. Dana Stevens will be there. Um, so you can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus to uh, get free access to that event as well as um, a bunch of other stuff. So uh, you should do it. Last week in Australia, cricket player Philip Hughes was struck in the back of the head on what's known as a short-pitched ball, a fast delivery from the bowler that bounced on the ground before hitting Hughes in the neck in an area that was not protected by his helmet. The 25-year-old Hughes died two days later of a vertebral artery dissection, and cricket fans, players, and writers are still in a state of shock. Writing in The Australian, Gideon Haig says, A week ago, being a batsman in cricket was as safe as milk. Now with the shattering death of a gifted, popular, and hugely promising young player, it seems impossibly dangerous. In actuality, batting is probably best regarded as meeting a third description, an activity that is very close to completely safe. But it was in that very closeness that the danger lurked because the possibility of total safety in any endeavor is illusory and deceptive. We are now joined from Melbourne, Australia, by Gideon Haig, who writes for The Australian and has written or edited 20 books about cricket. Gideon, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And we'll get into that third description that you that you wrote about in the Australian, which I think um, is a really interesting area to explore. But first, um, can you tell us who Philip Hughes was? Right. Well, Philip Hughes was um, an exceedingly promising 
young batsman. He'd been around the scene for about five years, but he was still only 25 years old. He was meant to turn 26 on Sunday. Uh, he was on the fringes of the Australian team. Uh, he'd played 26 test matches to this point. He was probably on the point of returning to the test side. The innings that he was playing at the Sydney Cricket Ground looked as though it was about to confirm that he was in form and in the pink and uh, and ready for promotion. He was on 63 not out, which is a is a score where a batsman would be feeling pretty secure and uh, and anxious to get the game moving and to take the initiative. He played an aggressive shot, a kind of aggressive shot called the pull shot, to a, a ball pitched about halfway down the wicket from a young bowler called Sean Abbott. And one of the many awful things about this story is that the bowler, Sean Abbott, was actually playing alongside Philip Hughes in, uh, in the Australian side only six weeks ago. So he's got an awful an awful story on uh, on his conscience now. There's been a lot of sympathy for him in Australia. Hughes probably got through the pull shot too early, and as a result, he would he would have been looking under normal circumstances to be hooking the ball from in front of his face. Uh, the ball came through a bit slower, so he was through his shot by the time the ball arrived, and he turned his head um, almost completely so that he was facing away from the ball, and uh, and the ball hit this uh, this unprotected part of his anatomy. Helmets have never really been designed to protect that part of the head. They're designed essentially to deflect glancing blows. Helmet technology is this um, fascinating dance between security, protection, comfort and aesthetics. And probably in recent times, players will now be thinking that they've erred on the side of, uh, of, of the last two, that they've taken for granted their impunity from being struck. Let me stop you there and ask a little bit about sure. the kind of ball that was bowled mm. at Philip Hughes. Um, I was reading a bit about sure. hook and pull shots and short balls, the idea being that the shorter you throw it, the higher it bounces. And in yeah. cricket, it's perfectly legitimate to actually target the batter, as opposed to in baseball, where you pitch inside to gain some control over the over home plate and to instill some fear or concern on the part of the batter. But you can't throw at the guy. And, and I think that's a distinction between cricket and baseball that I think would be helpful to, to understand a little bit better. Why is that part of cricket's history? Well, I mean, you can't really throw at a moving target. You know, the batsman doesn't have to stand there and, and just get hit. Unlike in, in baseball, that batsman is capable of manoeuvring round the crease area. So he would be looking to adjust his position according to where the ball arrived. There has been a change in batting technique where playing the pull and the hook shot is concerned. In the pre-helmet era, which is roughly up until the mid-70s, batsmen tended to take a back-and-across step to get inside the line of the ball and to remove their head from harm's way. Since the advent of the helmet, there's an argument that I've been mounting out here, batsmen have grown accustomed to hooking from in front of their face and relying on the technology of the helmet to exonerate them of injury. So Hughes was simply playing the shot the way that we've become accustomed to playing it in the, in the last 20 or 30 years. 
It's been a remarkable sight in that time that the incredible impacts that batsmen have been able to withstand. They've been a little bit like these sort of spectacular car accidents from which the passengers and drivers seems to escape without a scratch. Often you've kind of, over the last few years, you've braced yourself for the worst, seeing a batsman hit in the helmet, and they've sort of got up and shaken themselves down and, and resumed playing with, um, without any impairment. We've been perhaps living in a fool's paradise as, as regards the, uh, the degree of security the batsmen have enjoyed. The idea of a helmet giving way to more dangerous actions, either on the part of the person wearing the helmet or opposition. That's an argument familiar to hockey fans, ice hockey fans. Mm. Also to bicycle riders. Um, you know, libertarians often make this argument that people, it's one of, actually one of the most controversial studies if uh, cars go closer to a bicycle rider is wearing a helmet. So we've looked at the helmet. We've looked at the kind of shot. We've looked at if Phil Hughes was wearing the most advanced helmet. Answer seems to be no. Mm. Yet the other answer seems to be that even the most advanced helmet wouldn't have stopped that shot. I think if there's a decent place to look, it's not even in the world of sport, from what I've read. It's the response time from the ambulance. Am I? Is there much being um, talked about there? There, It took over 20 minutes for the ambulance to transport him yeah. off the pitch. My, my understanding is that he was dead almost on arrival at the hospital, and that the injury was, was so extreme that even if, if medical attention had been instantaneous, he would have perished. The doctors are saying that there have only been 100 case studies of, of this particular injury in, uh, in the history of medical literature, and only once has it involved a cricket ball. It's very difficult to legislate under, under those circumstances. It does seem like a, a genuine act of God. So let's get back to um, what you wrote in The Australian about how the activity is very close to completely safe, and it can feel ghoulish to have this conversation after mm. someone has just died in this horrific way, this very saddening way. But this does seem, despite you know the changes in batting that you described, I think it would still be fair to call it a freak accident. And um, you know, here in the U.S., we watch the NFL every week, and there are players getting horrifically injured, and nobody has died in an NFL mm. game, and you know. Has anybody ever died in no. an NFL game? Other than having a heart attack on the field, the Detroit Lions was 1971. Yeah, nobody has, has died in an NFL game in decades um, and not from a, from a hit. So, you know, are there broader conclusions to be drawn for, from this? Or would it be fair to say that this is just a freak accident? Mm. It's, there, there have been fatalities in, uh, in, in cricket before. They haven't necessarily involved... Head blows. Two examples I can think of. A young Pakistani first-class cricketer called Abdul Aziz was killed in the mid-1950s when a slow delivery, actually a slow delivery called an off-break, hit him in the chest um, over the heart. Similarly, a, a young Queensland Colts wicketkeeper called Martin Bedcober was killed in Brisbane first-grade cricket in the mid-1970s, also being hit over the heart. It seems as though if the pericardium is engorged with blood at the time that the ball impacts on it, then there's a chance of, uh, of, of that part of the anatomy actually exploding as a result. Considering the hardness of the ball, though, and considering the unknowables of the pitch of the ball, the height at which the ball is going to come through, or the encouragement to the batsman to actually place their body in the line of the delivery, it's perhaps surprising that there haven't been more significant serious injuries apart from the helmet 
the technology in the in cricket hasn't changed all that much. The ball is basically the same ball as was bowl as was used for the last century and a half. It's leather and cork and wool created in such a fashion as to be quite dense and uh, and and hard on the on the outside. And it's interesting, you know, I, I still play the game and um, it was interesting to go back to playing it at the weekend and to all of a sudden be additionally conscious of the potential lethality in the cricket ball. There's a whole lot of things that just become part of the landscape in cricket that you tend to take for granted. And that, that's similar to other sports as well. I mean, baseball, mm. certainly. So, so ultimately, does this just become a moral hazard question that there are that there are these risks in this particular sport and we've seen the, the consequences of one of the most horrific ones? Or is there room for reform the way in baseball in 1920, a, a batter named Ray Chapman was killed by a, by a pitched ball. Baseball then outlawed the spitball. More recently in 2007, a coach standing at first base, Mike Coolball in the minor leagues, was struck in a similar spot as Phil Hughes and died as well. Since then, coaches now on the field all wear helmets. Uh, is there room for change in cricket? Cricket will probably have to have a look at its techniques and the way in which it's been encouraging batsmen to play cross-batted shots. We were talking before about, I think it's what psychologists call risk compensation, the idea that you know if a given behaviour begins to seem less risky than it used to, people will compensate by tackling it in a riskier fashion. And that certainly seems to have been what, what's happened with the pool shot. Cricket um, might reflect that it's uh, over the years it's gotten off lightly. Stefan, with, with regards to baseball, I don't necessarily get the sense that the game is safer now. I think the numbers here are so small so if Aroldis Chapman had been hit in the face in a slightly different place, he could have been, he could killed. Have been killed. But instead, all, you know, quote unquote, all that happened was that he broke his face. And so yeah. these very small, you know, millimeter differences in where a ball happens to hit a player can lead to drastic differences in how things are discussed and how people react to them. And that's, you know, only And the fair. responses differ at different levels. I mean, the aluminum bat yeah. has been controlled in baseball at lower levels in college and high school to prevent the real crazy speeds of the ball coming off of the bat. So there are changes, but how much genuine effect those changes can have when, as you just said, Josh, the outcomes are based on <laughs> millimeters is unclear. Well, Mike, I'd be interested to hear what you have to think about this. There were a couple columns that I read of people saying, well, in cricket, fast bowling is kind of a test of your mettle. And what is the point of an endeavor like this, of a sport, if there's not a little bit of danger? I mean, do you have sympathy for that argument? Well, I wouldn't say danger, but this is what makes it uh, the utmost skill. And this is what brings the frisson of excitement that it seems almost impossible. Not that you're in physical danger, but perhaps that you could be. And of course, this is why spectators blame themselves. I just do think that in U.S. sports where there's been a death or international sports, when we're talking about the luge track to Olympics ago, seems to definitely have been built unsafely when we talk about some of these skiing X game events where if you land wrong, you will, and in many cases, you have died because we want to have that big air. But it doesn't seem, and then, of course, there's the NASCAR debate, and it seems like in the United States, when something like this happens, there are a couple sides to the argument, and then there are the traditionalists, and mostly safety is embraced. But Gideon, what has been the conversation in Australia? Is it? Are there two sides, a large, a contentious 
debate where some people are saying it needs to be safer and other people are saying there's nothing to do about this freak accident? Because most of the coverage I've read mainly is calling it just that, a freak accident. Yes, I think so. I, I think that's uh, people have shied away from a knee-jerk reaction. There's still just a sense of, of shock and dismay about such a popular young player being cut down uh, in his prime. And not just in his prime, but, you know, in full view, you know, in front of television cameras. His, his mother and his sister were present at the ground. He was playing for his current state against his former state, so all the players on both sides knew him well. Uh, you know, it's a small and close-knit community cricket in Australia, and a lot of people seem to have um, some kind of direct connection with the tragic events. Just to go back to your earlier discussion about the about the situation in American sport, I don't know what the trends are overall in American sport about the sort of balance of power between bat and ball or all the different skills, but I think a, a subtext or a, or a backstory to what's happened here is that batting in cricket over the last 10 or 15 years has stolen the march on, on bowling. Um, a distinct imbalance has opened up between batting and bowling in cricket precisely because of you know, the high standard of, of protective equipment. Bats have become immensely powerful and new preparations being used. Pitches um, are being prepared in, in a very flat and, and uniform fashion that, that tend to favour batsmen. There aren't many bowlers around these days of, of genuine pace. You know, Sean Abbott, who bowled that ball last week, is just a, a pretty regulation, medium-pace bowler. Technology's been allowed to play a part in, uh, in, in umpiring decisions so that errors are, are often immediately rescinded. It's become possible to mount an argument that batting's become too safe over time and that, as a result, batsmen have, uh, have sought to take advantage of their new impunity. Yeah, and baseball has kind of gone the opposite direction over the last few years where pitchers have taken the lead, um, but there's still obviously kind of immense danger in being 60 feet away from the batter's mm-hmm. box with no protection and a screaming line drive potentially coming right back in your face. I don't think we have the sense that due to the dominance of pitching, it's somehow become more safe for either the batter. You know, the batter could be hit in the head just as, as well as you could in, mm. in cricket. There have actually been complaints from umpires in, uh, in cricket that they're in danger of being hit. That's how far the balance is tilted in the batsman's favor. Well, an umpire was killed in, in Israel in, in the yes, last couple of days. That. Well, perhaps we can end by um, you describing to us the Put Out Your Bats campaign that's been on social media and and talk about how that kind of shows the the response to, to Hughes and kind of the character of the cricket community. Yeah, people were looking for some kind of gesture to make as a result. I think everyone felt this um, this loss so acutely that they wanted to make some sort of gesture that, that indicated their continuing faith in cricket and to indicate the way in which Hughes' death had affected them individually. So people began putting their bats outside the doors of their houses or in the windows of their houses or at the front of their clubhouses or laying them down on their pitches and taking photographs of them and posting them on social media. I know I certainly did it. And at the weekend um, before the game that I played in, uh, the players of both sides lay their bats out on the pitch and we had a a minute's silence and and I said a few words before stepping out to open the batting myself um, and that ritual was replicated across Australia. 
Their funeral is uh, is scheduled for this Wednesday in uh, in Hughes's uh, hometown of of Maxville in New South Wales. His father is a banana farmer. It's a classic small country town, which was um, enormously proud of, of Hughes's achievements. That'll be broadcast live on on television across Australia, and I dare say it um, it will stop a nation, just as this injury did last week. All right, Gideon, thank you for joining us and for giving us the context and the view from Australia on, on Philip Hughes. Uh, thanks so much. My pleasure. Gideon Haig writes for The Australian and has written or edited 20 books about cricket. All right, now it is time for After Balls. I'm going to be talking about Canadian football in a minute. And um, there's a big dispute in Canada about who owns the Rough Riders nickname. But I'm not as interested in that as in the more relevant debate of whether the nickname Rough Riders should have a space between mm-hmm. rough and riders or whether it should all be one word. So we're going to do rough riders. But then you're saying as our you... as our afterball name, but we need to make a decision right now like what's the official hang up and listen position about whether rough and riders should be separated. So if you throw your lot with Saskatchewan or if you throw your lot with Ottawa, if you're a Saskatchewan, you're a rough rider. <laughs> if you're an Ottawan, you're a rough rider. <laughs> I like Saskatchewan. That sounds like an insult. Saskatchewan. All right, Stefan, Rough Riders, one word or two. One word, it's acceptable in Scrabble as one word, therefore one word. But it's acceptable in Scrabble as one word because here's how Merriam-Webster, uh, Collegiate Dictionary, defines Rough Rider, one who is accustomed to riding unbroken or little trained horses. Second uh, sense of Rough Rider, usually Rough Rider, two words, capitalized, a member of the 1st U- United States Volunteer Cavalry Regiment in the Spanish-American War, commanded by Teddy Roosevelt. So there shouldn't be a space then if we're uh, talking about Canadians. It would, it would be disrespectful. Look, the Canadians are on their own. They got their own dictionaries. They can do whatever they want up there. I'm just saying, Rough Rider in my book, it's a Western thing. It's horses, one word. Mike, what is your Rough Rider with no space? Well, currently there are 40 Division One basketball, men's basketball teams who are lossless. Yes, lossless, who have no losses. We call this undefeated. It's the nicer way to think is about it. Is this trivia? Can I guess what all 40 are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kentucky. How many ended vowels? Kentucky. (laughs) All right, continue. (laughs) Okay, so the 40th, the worst of the undefeated teams, ranking it at a Ken Palm rating of 195, incarnate word. Incarnate word? I'm going to say incarnate word. Incarnate word, which seems to be like, uh, is this an early American settler? Was he friends with wrestling Brewster incarnate word? No, it is a religious school based in Texas. And let me read you a little bit about some of, wait, Mike, is men's basketball the only sport that incarnate word offers? No, they play in the Southland Conference and offer a panoply of sports, including for women, synchronized swimming. Synchronized swimming is not an NCAA-sanctioned sport, but it is sponsored by USA Synchro. But I want to talk about the incarnate word men's basketball team, their 4-0 record. They faced and bested such opponents as Texas-Tyler, Houston-Tillotson, but Houston is spelled H-U-S-T-O-N. No. <laughs> yes. Texas A&M-International. 
And then they also beat a team that you may have heard of, Princeton. That's right. They went up to New Jersey and they beat Princeton on Princeton's home court for some reason at 11 o'clock in the morning at the Jadwin Gymnasium. The final score was 79 to 68. They got out to an early 15-point lead on the the Princeton blogs. They were just saying, well, if you thought that this wasn't the end of an era, this is clearly the end of an era. We lost to something called Incarnate Word. This is their, uh, they're making their transition, their first full transition into Division One. Incarnate Word's nickname is the Cardinals. Someone said oh, the kind with the funny hats, not the kind who fly around. No, it is the kind who fly around. Look at the logo. So to be clear, in the case of Incarnate Word, the bird is the Incarnate Word. And I was wrong about Houston until that's in. It actually is with a U, now with an O. Oh, I yeah. never knew that. Yeah. What an odd schedule of teams. Stefan, what is your Rough Rider? Well, our cricket guest came thanks to a recommendation from a listener in Australia, Edward P. Olson, who wrote a lovely blog post about the death of Philip Hughes. In that blog post, he noted the outpouring of concern for the bowler, Sean Abbott. One is reminded of John Malangone, Edward wrote, and can but wonder how a person might respond to such an accident playing out in such a public forum. For an Aussie, that was a pretty impressive reference. Uh, To those who remember the name, Josh did. John Malangone was the subject of a masterful Gary Smith profile in Sports Illustrated in 1997. Malangone was a New York Yankees catching prospect in the 1950s, the next to Yogi Berra, it was said. But as Smith's very Smithian 11-page profile details, his career was undone by something that happened when he was five years old in 1937 when he and some friends in his East Harlem neighborhood turned a broomstick and a spoke from an umbrella into a javelin, and five-year-old John hurled it as far as he could, and it struck his seven-year-old best friend and uncle Orlando, his mother's brother, in the temple, and the wound became infected, and Orlando died. The accident haunted Malangone for decades, voices in his head, fear, guilt. As a kid, he fought the demons by hitting baseballs on a sandlot, where he was discovered by the same Yankee scout who had signed Lou Gehrig and Phil Rizzuto. Smith centers the beginning of the end of Malangone's career on a spring training photo in the New York Daily News in 1955 of the future yogi between Hall of Fame catchers Bill Dickey and Mickey Cochran. Malangone was illiterate, couldn't even spell or sign his name, and the photo Smith posits was the trigger for his fear that he would be unmasked as a childhood killer. Malangone hit a ton of homers in the minors, but also behaved so oddly and erratically that the Yankees couldn't trust him, couldn't promote him. Malangone didn't entrust his secret with anyone, not a psychiatrist, certainly, which was what he needed. Smith writes, for years, he tiptoed this precarious ledge between stardom and banishment. One night, he would leave a gaping hole in Norfolk's center field fence, attempting to snag a fly ball in his mercury at 40 miles per hour. The next night, he would batter the plywood bandaged wall with line drives. He would go AWOL for two weeks. He would hit three. 56 at Winston-Salem, he would ground out and continue running up the right field line all the way to the fence and smash it with his fist. No one ever dreamed that he was swinging at a flickering image of a javelin, a coffin, a child's face. After he wrecked a motorcycle and broke his leg in 1959, Malangone was done. He married, had five kids, worked as a mechanic at a Sears and elsewhere, and drank and tried to keep the demons at bay. In the 1990s, nearly 60 years after the accident, he finally confided in a friend, got help, and found Orlando's death certificate and saw the cause of death, accident, and told his story. Wayne Coffey first wrote it in the New York Daily News in 1995, and then came Smith's piece two years later, which Smith said was one of his two favorite or most memorable stories. 
stories. There was a documentary, Long Road Home, in 2006. A self-published book, Pinstripes and Penance, by Michael Harrison, appears to be coming out soon. As I googled Malangone, one recent story popped up by Steve Politi of the Newark Star-Ledger in 2012. It was about how Malangone's house was wrecked by Hurricane Sandy, and Malangone, then 81 years old, was floating in the muck outside his little fairy house, his Yorkshire Terrier barking itself hoarse from the top step of the porch, and the panic he had fought his entire life had risen along with the floodwaters. Someone else came across that story a couple of years later, another Yankees prospect from the 1950s who got in touch with Malangone about a Yankees organization reunion in the summer in Greensboro, North Carolina, where Malangone played in 1958. He said that Malangone, as of last April, is doing quite well. Josh, what's your Rough Rider? The Canadian Football League's Calgary Stampeders won the 102nd Grey Cup on Sunday after the Hamilton Tiger Cats' potential game-winning punt return with less than a minute to play was overturned by an illegal block in the back. Oh, no! To add insult to block-in-the-back penalties, the Toronto Argonauts' Twitter account trolled the Thai Cats with an image of a blue ribbon that carried the message, Back-to-back Grey Cup participants. <laughs> Canada burn! Canada on Canada. Mean. It's tiger, mean. It's tiger Cat one word or two. It's hyphenated, tiger-cat. Well, that's after the marriage. (laughs) Um, Indeed. I am not sure why the Argos are in such a frisky, kind of un-Canadian mood, given the sorry state of the franchise. The Toronto Star's Bruce Arthur notes that nobody in the city cares at all about the once-proud Argos. In another column in the Star, Damian Cox accuses owner David Braley of running the franchise into the ground and asks, where's the pizzazz, the special sense of Canadiana, the pride that even if the NFL is bigger, our game is better? Well, there's a lot more pizzazz, Mr. Cox, back in the early 90s when Bruce McNall bought the team. McNall, who also in the NHL's LA Kings, was a crook, but he was a crook with pizzazz. He brought on Wayne Gretzky and John Candy as co-owners. They outbid Cowboys owner Jerry Jones for the services of Notre Dame's Rocket Ishmael. Ishmael signed a $4.5 million per year deal at a time when the CFL salary cap was $3 million per team, a fact that McNall conveniently got around by paying Ishmael under a personal services contract. But more than McNall or Gretzky, it was Candy, who played football in high school and grew up going to Argonauts games, who truly loved the team. In 2012, Canada's TSN made a short documentary about Candy's love for the Argos called True Double Blue. In the documentary, his daughter says that during the period Candy co-owned the team, his family came first, the Argonauts second, and acting a distant third. The Argonauts made the Grey Cup in Candy's first year as a co-owner. That game was played at minus 16 degrees Celsius, makes the uh, cold weather Super Bowl seem like a nice, uh, slightly brisk but pleasant affair, uh, minus 16 degrees Celsius. Here's Argos player Michael Pinball Clemens talking about Candy's impact on that game. The most inspirational moment for me that entire year may have been John Candy standing on the sideline in a leather coat in 20 below at the Great Cup. He's not up in the press box where, the, you know, all the heat and all. He, he, he is down on the field with his guys. And now all of a sudden, I'm not as cold. Uh, Ishmael ran a kickoff back for a touchdown 
and the Argos won the 91 Grey Cup, but everything fell apart soon after that. The team was hemorrhaging money, and McNall, who admitted in 1994 to stealing $236 million from six banks, the dude was a crook. He was looking to sell. Candy learned that the team had been sold when he was filming the movie Wagons East in Mexico. Who could forget it? It was on the set of that same movie that he died of a heart attack. After Candy's death, Argonauts players wore a gold star patch with his initials on their jerseys. The John Candy Memorial Award is given each year to the team's top player, but perhaps in a sign of the Argonauts' pitiful condition, the team's official website does not list any recipient for 2013 or 2014. So if Argonauts are going to make fun of the Tiger Cats for making back-to-back uh, Grey Cups. How about I make fun of you for not bothering to name back-to-back John Candy Memorial Award winners. For shame, Argonauts, where's your sense of Canadiana? We'd love your feedback and what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcast. Leave us a comment. Leave us a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty. Thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.